Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. For Space 3D, this is Eleanor O'Rangers. Recently, co-host Tom Hill and I had the pleasure of interviewing David Chudwin, a fellow space enthusiast who I had become acquainted with during my time living in the greater Chicago area. Little did I know that this mild-mannered physician allergist was soon to become a space author. It turns out that David has an interesting story to tell with a connection to the Apollo 11 moon launch, and 50 years later, he has published his memoirs from that time entitled, I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. In part one of our Space 3D interview with David, he recounts how he got the opportunity, along with a friend of his, to travel to Cape Canaveral to cover the Apollo 11 launch as a student reporter for the Michigan Daily. Well, welcome to, to another episode of Space 3D. This is one of your co-hosts, Eleanor Rangers, along with one of my other co-hosts, Tom Hill, this evening. And we are delighted to have the opportunity to talk to David Chudwin, who recently has published a book. I guess we could call it your memoirs in, in a way. Um, it's entitled, I Was a Teenage Space Reporter, that basically is recounting uh some of uh, David's adventures when he was a college student working the space beat, if you will, down at uh, Cape Canaveral during the Apollo 11 launch. So we're uh, very interested in learning uh, kind of about the origins of this book. And I think we'll just go ahead and uh, kick this off. Welcome, David. Thank you. Great to be here. How did this happen? That's That's got to be the first question on everybody's mind. How did you get to be the teenage space reporter? Well, I grew up with a space program. I was born in 1950, and I was seven when Sputnik went off, and I was 11 when the first humans, uh, Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard, went into space. So I had a longtime interest in space. Uh, during high school, I worked on my high school newspaper and found that I enjoyed journalism. So when I entered the University of Michigan uh, in Ann Arbor in uh, August 1968, uh, I joined the staff of the Michigan Daily. Uh, the Daily is the independent student-run newspaper there since, nine, since 1890, uh, so it's an old institution. Now, at the Daily, uh, I was the only one who had any interest whatsoever in space. Everybody else was majoring in politics, philosophy, and the humanities, and so by default, I kind of became the Daily Space Reporter. For example, the Apollo 7 flight uh, made the first manned Apollo flight in October 1968. Um, I had the opportunity to write an editorial um, about the flight for the Daily. Uh, this was kind of very unusual because freshmen usually did not get the opportunity to, uh, to write editorials. And I wrote a piece called The Case for Outer Space, which uh, actually has stood up pretty good the last 50 years. So... To get back to the Apollo 11 flight, um, in December 1968, I was back home uh, and talking to an old friend of mine who also had an interest in space, and he suggested, why don't we go down to the Cape in the summer of 1969, when we were on college break, and see a Saturn V launch? Uh, we had no idea that it would be for the first landing on the moon, 
but that's the way the schedule worked out. We, we looked at NASA's schedule and saw that they had an Apollo flight, Apollo 11, scheduled for July 1969. And so we decided to, to, to go for it. And the hardest thing was to get NASA press credentials. Wow. Well, let me <clears throat> let me ask you a question. So I didn't realize that they had something published at that time about the projected launch dates. I mean, I guess, you know, people know today I see stuff on Facebook with, oh, we've got, you know, such and such a launch coming up. But I, I don't know why I didn't realize that they also had those uh, projected out as well. But I guess they didn't announce necessarily at the time. Okay, this one's going to be the moonshot, you know, so to speak. Well, it was dependent on the progress. So Apollo 8 was the first flight of the Saturn V. Apollo 9 was the first flight of the lunar module. And they were going to do Apollo 10, the first dress rehearsal of landing on the moon. And um, if those all went well, then there was a possibility that Apollo 11 would be the first moon flight. But it just as well could have been Apollo 12, uh, depending on the progress that they made with the previous flight. So that, there was that type of schedule. Right. As far as the dates went... Um, a lot of it was dictated by celestial mechanics. Uh, they had to launch so that uh, when they got to the moon, that the um, landing area would be in a, sh a shadow area where they would have the best vis visibility. And this dictated uh, what dates might be feasible for a successful launch. So um, just a quick aside, are you still in contact with your friend who went down there? Curious if he ended up in journalism or medicine, like what he ended up doing. Well, um, I am in contact with him. And in fact, um, he, he was at my last uh, book signing. We enjoyed uh, talking to each other. Um, he went in, he didn't go into journalism either. He went, became a PhD in immunology and has done immunology research. Oh, okay. So you're, you've been a space enthusiast from way back. And now you've got this opportunity to plan going down to the Cape. So before you ended up working on your press credentials, did you, when you got back from like winter break um, back to Michigan, did you propose being going down there under the auspices as a member of the press? Like how did you approach that with the school and with the newspaper? Well, I first had to get approval of the daily senior editors to go down there representing the daily. Uh, and, um, there was not much competition to go to a space event, but there was also not much uh, support. They were willing to let me go and cover it for the daily with the proviso that I had to cover all my own expenses. Sending a, a sophomore reporter to view a space launch was not high in their list of priorities, to say the least. <laughs> so I got approval from the senior editors, and then the next step was to try and get uh, approval from the NASA Public Affairs Office. Now, there were two big problems as far as this. First of all, that there were over 3,500 requests for press passes from organizations around the world. The second thing was that NASA generally did not accredit college journalists because it considered them more students than professional journalists. And this was the biggest roadblock, and it looked like that we were going to have to perhaps go down uh, without a press pass. But luckily, one of the daily senior editors was working in Washington that summer for an outfit called the College Press Service, which was a consortium of about 500 university newspapers. He actually personally went to NASA Public Affairs office and pled our case that I wouldn't be representing just the Michigan Daily, but all of the college newspapers. And he must have been fairly persuasive because kind of at the last minute, 
uh, the public affairs office agreed to send me and my friend press passes. Wow, that was pretty slick. That was good thinking on his part. Right. So um, I was getting a little bit discouraged, but still happy to be going down there. Uh, but So the, the launch was scheduled for July 16th. And on June 17th, I received a letter in the mail telling me that we the press passes had been approved. And it was one of the biggest thrills opening that envelope uh, a few days later and getting the um, getting the actual press pass. <laughs> wow. Do you still have the press pass? Yes, it's one of my uh, proud possessions. Uh, I actually have it uh, archivally framed so it'll last many, many decades. Uh, that's that's terrific. Here's another just practical question. So, of course, a pretty significant part of humanity is going to be descending upon Cape Canaveral for one of these launches. And I'm just curious, you know, how did you guys, did you drive down? Did you fly? Where did you get, how hard was it to get a hotel? You know, anything, any of that practical stuff I'm just curious about. Right. Well, um, when we decided to go down, um, there were, again, there was no Internet there. So the way you made hotel reservations was to call on a rotary dial phone long distance to the place you were interested in. And all the, the big hotels like the Cape Kennedy Hilton were long sold out. So I found a small, older motel uh, called the Sea Missile Motel. Uh, and this was somewhat seedy and old, but uh, it fit our budget. It was $10 a night. Oh, there you go. Nice. Now, again, you have to realize there's been a lot of inflation since 1969, but uh, so that, that that $10 then would be around $70 now, but it was still considered inexpensive. So uh, we made a reservation on the phone for that motel, and again, this is prior to the Internet. Um, I received a postcard in response confirming our reservation. In the book, uh, I have a copy of that. I, I've saved a lot of the stuff from that visit. And so I have my uh, copy of my uh, motel reservation and the bill at $10 a night. Now, the other thing that we did was we needed to um, make plane reservations because it was too long to drive. So the plan was to... Um, take a plane to the Melbourne, Florida airport. Uh, at the time, the Orlando airport, which is the major airport there now, was was not very developed at all. And most of the flights went into uh, went to this Melbourne airport, which was uh, south of Cape Kennedy. And so made a uh, reservation uh, for that. And the round-trip airfare was $93.50. <laughs> wow. That was a lot of money back then. That's right. right yeah, that was cl- over, um, you know, a little bit over $600 wow. in ni- 2019 dollars. Yeah, it was a lot harder to uh, to do comparison shopping back then. Right. So, all right, so you, you made your, you made your arrangements, you got down there without too much of a of a problem. Just kind of curious, once you arrived in the airport, were you kind of immediately on the lookout for, like, anybody famous you might have seen in the airport, any sort of, like, interim scoops before you saw the launch? Well, it was interesting. Back at Chicago O'Hare Airport, uh, my friend and I were standing in line to check in, and in front of us is this older woman, and she looked very familiar. Uh, To make a long story short, it was Mrs. Rose Cernan, Eugene Cernan's mother, and she was flying down to the to the launch. 
and we had recognized her because we had seen her at a, a reception in the Illinois uh, after uh, Cernan uh, made his uh, Gemini 9 flight. And I kind of looked over her shoulder and saw the, the name on the ticket. So we said hello to her and uh, talked a little bit. And uh, she asked us what schools we went to. And so um, we saw her again when we changed planes uh, to get to the Melbourne airport. When we arrived there, um, we walk out um, towards to get the, the luggage. And she's standing there with four other men. Now, Gene Cernan was, could not pick up her mother that day because he had other responsibilities. So he had sent Alan Bean uh, to pick her up at the airport. Wow. And with Alan Bean were three other NASA astronauts. So Mrs. Cernan uh, introduced us to uh, Alan Bean. And the other three astronauts happened to be Jim Irwin, Charlie Duke, and Bruce McCandless. Wow. So we met upon arriving in Florida, three of the men, the 12 men who would later walk on the moon. And uh, we felt that this was a very good sign that after just arriving that we met these NASA astronauts. Wow, that's incredible. Were they curious about you guys too? Like, hey, what's a bunch of college kids reporting on this, or? No, they, they were very friendly. Uh, like, um, the only one at that point that had a flight assignment was Alan Bean because he was going up on the next flight, Apollo 12. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get a picture with that, of me with Alan Bean. So Jim Irwin took the camera and took a picture of me and Alan Bean. Wow, that's great. <laughs> I know. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, um, all these pictures and stuff are um, in my book, uh, I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. Yep, I have it. I have it right here with me. So very exciting. And I do I do actually see the picture um, of you with a uh, old Beano there on page. There you go. On page 101. <laughs> so how did it work with you having the press pass, but you traveling with your buddy? Could you take him to some of the events that you could go to? No, we. it was arranged that he got a press pass also. Oh, OK. So you had two passes. That's great. Right. Wow. Okay. So here, here's another question, because I just don't know this in terms of the whole press pass thing. So by getting press credentials, how then did you know when there might have been a press event? Did, they, did NASA send you stuff? Like, how did you find out about that so you could show up at certain times for certain things? Well, with the press pass came a six-page press instruction sheet from NASA Public Affairs, okay. and it, it told where the press center was going to be. Now, for most launches, they had a press center right on the Kennedy Space Center grounds, but that was because of the massive number of reporters coming, 3,500, uh, it couldn't accommodate them. So NASA for Apollo 11 took over this industrial building uh, on Highway A1A, Kitty Corner to the Cape Kennedy Hilton. It was a two-story industrial building, and this was the the location uh, for Apollo 11 of most of the, the press uh, information and events. On the, on the first floor was a, um, a camera room with a stage, and some of the press conferences were held there. Upstairs, there were um, tables and tables full of manual typewriters, of and also pay telephones. Again, this this was before the internet, before personal computers, before social media, and so you would have reporters sitting there typing out on manual typewriters their stories, 
and then either calling them or teletyping them into their news organizations. <laughs> wow. Did you guys have to do that or did you just take notes? No, I mean, I, I would take notes during the day. And in fact, one of the things that allowed me to write the book was the, the a notebook that I had kept with all the kind of details of the visit. Uh, but we would go up there, write a story, and then because we were a low-budget operation, we didn't have access to teletypes. So what we had to do was uh, use a rotary phone, dial up the Michigan Daily, read the text of the report over the phone word by word, and someone at the other end was sitting with a typewriter typing it out. Wow. Amazing. <clears throat> wow. Who had the... Uh... Who had the illustrious duty of that? Who, do, who were you able to rope into that? Oh, in terms of, of getting it over the phone? Yeah. Yeah, we usually dictated it to someone who was at the lowest rung of the daily. That was one of their jobs uh, as an assistant night editor was to uh, type out stories that were dictated in. Oh, my. Wow, very cool. Well, tell us a little bit then. So how many days ahead of the launch did you get down there? Well, my uh, my 19th birthday was July 11th, 1969. And two days later, on July 13th, we flew down to the Cape. This was three days before the scheduled launch. Okay. Uh, we got there. We checked into the hotel. Um, we went to the NASA News Center and signed up for some tours and interviews. Uh, and those started the, the next day. And uh, so we, we had two very detailed uh, press tours of the various uh, launch aspects. Uh, on these bus tours, uh, one was just a small mini bus. There were like eight reporters, a number from other countries, uh, and we were taken around for a personal tour on a mini bus by a very knowledgeable contractor employee. And we were able to get within 2,000 feet of the Apollo 11 Saturn V where the uh, wire escape system ended and there were personnel carriers. Uh, in case of an emergency, the astronauts would have jumped out of their Apollo capsule, jumped into this gondola, and then slid down 2,000 feet uh, away from the rocket and jumped into these armored personnel carriers. It's called the wire escape system. So we got within 2,000 feet of the Saturn V. Uh, we were able to walk on the floor of the launch control center we were able to go into the vehicle assembly building, the VAB, and go to the roof of it. Uh, all of these things we would have never have been able to have done without press passes. Oh, man. That must have been just incredible. So th that was just the first day's tour. Um, on, the <laughs> second day, on the second day tour, we got into a bus, and I was on the same bus as the author Norman Mailer, who wrote a book about uh, his Apollo 11 experience. Uh, but the second day, we went to the uh, again to the launch control center and were able to see the launch controllers getting ready for the launch. Uh, and we were able to go down on one of the fire rooms that wasn't being used and actually sit at the launch director's console uh, for that firing room. Uh, and in the afternoon, we went to the rollback of the gantry, the mobile service structure from the Saturn V, and then went to a position uh, where we were able to see the uh, Saturn V itself uh, attached just to the launch umbilical tower. 
And it, it was a very uh, um, impressive sight. Wow. Very cool. Now, you mentioned you saw Norman Mailer on your second day. I was wondering, did you befriend any of the other press people? Have you ever kept in touch with them over the years? I'm just curious about that. No, not really, um, because, again, we were college students. I mean, we were basically ignored by the rest of the press. You were taking up a slot for a a professional reporter. Right. Well, we considered ourselves reporters, but, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest, I guess. Absolutely. Well, besides the, the tours, we went to two major press conferences. The first one was called the Center Director's Briefing, and it was on July 14th, two days before the launch. It was at the Apollo 11 News Center in uh, Cape Canaveral, and it involved the directors of the NASA centers uh, responsible for Apollo. So the, the guests there were, first of all, Werner von Braun, in person, uh, the director of the Marshall Space Flight Center and former German rocket scientist. Um, secondly, it was Kurt Diebus, who was director of the Kennedy Space Center and also a former, former German rocket scientist. Uh, there was Robert Gilruth, head of the Manned Spacecraft Center. Uh, and there was Dr. George Miller, uh, the head of Manned Space Flight for NASA. And uh, it was uh, the moderated by Jack King, the public affairs officer for Apollo 11. Uh, who had such a distinctive voice and uh, whose commentary of the uh, countdown and launch was uh, really uh, spectacular. Did you get a chance to ask a question? Well, there were like several hundred photographers, and so we didn't have an opportunity to ask questions. But one of the best questions was to Werner von Braun, uh, and uh, von Braun was always very quotable. Uh, von, Von Braun was asked, what is the importance of this launch? That's coming up. And he compared it to when amphibians left the oceans to live on land. Now, at the time, I thought that was hyperbole. But as I thought about it over the years, uh, I, I think that that's one of the actual rationales for the space program is um, getting humankind into a whole new environment uh, and eventually colonizing the solar system. Yeah, it's definitely a seminal moment. You know, you were you were either born before we landed on the moon or after. Right. Now, the other press conference we went to uh, was the day before the launch, and this was at the Launchpad 39 press site, uh, which was a, um, a large grandstand, and there was a stage in front of it, and all the operational uh, people involved in Apollo were there. Um, some of the people who were there included uh, astronaut Deke Slayton, head of the the astronaut office, uh, Dr. Charles Berry, the head of the medical part of it, um, George Lowe, who was in charge of the Apollo spacecraft, uh, and um, and other people um, such as Rocco uh, uh, Patron, the head of launch for the Kennedy Space Center. And so they gave an update on how preparations were proceeding, which were very uh, um, good at that point. We had just a limited amount of time uh, personally to be down there. Uh, I had a job, a very good summer job back in Chicago, and I could only take a week off. And one of our great fears was that there would be postponements or scrubs uh, that would set the launch back and that we'd have to fly back to Chicago without seeing the launch. Mm -hmm. So we were very nervous about whether the launch would actually um, uh, get off on time. It had been scheduled months ago 
for 9, 9.32 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time on July 16th. And the question in our minds was, would it make it? Wow. But How many days could they try it before the... Uh before the, they lost the shadows on the moon? How many, how many days could they go for launches? Well, if they had to postpone it, they would have to postpone it at least two days because they would have to um, you know, drain the f- rocket fuel and then reload it. Uh, and right. so the, a scrub involved uh, two days. And um, I don't remember the precise number of days, but I think that they could get in uh, three different launch attempts uh, before they would have to go to another month to do it. All right. So basically, yeah, you had three three launch attempts over the course of basically five days with the two days between each one. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that was one of the, the real kind of cliffhangers uh, of it. Um, you know, would it go off on time? Uh, because actually, if you look at the history of manned spaceflight, it's very rare for rocket launches to go off precisely the time that they were scheduled for months in advance. We hope you enjoyed meeting David Chudwin. Stay tuned for the conclusion of our interview with David, where he regales us with his coverage of launch day for Apollo 11 on July 16, 1969. David's book, I Was a Teenage Space Reporter, is available on Amazon and most other major book sales outlets. Having read it myself, I highly recommend it. It's also fun knowing the person behind the story as well. So for Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.